Uh, good morning. This morning I thought I would start with a story about my friend named Ty. Uh, when I was growing up, I had a friend named Ty who uh, I'll never forget the day that he returned from a year away at a prestigious military school in upstate New York. See, we were, we were public school kids growing up in a diverse neighborhood in central Florida. And I wouldn't quantify Ty as, you know, a bad kid. Okay? He was never really a troublemaker in school, though he was foul-mouthed, exceedingly overweight, disrespectful of all parental authority, his and everyone else's. I remember him talking back to teachers at times, you know, but he wasn't like a kid that had like one foot in juvie. He was just a warm-blooded American playboy who came from wealth, who sought his way at every turn and got his way at every turn, but not, you know, like a bad kid, right? When he got back, I remember noticing just how starkly different he was. In fact, I wouldn't have seen if he were a quantified bad kid, self-seeking kid, selfish kid. I would have noticed it because I loved him. How many of you have ever been blinded by love? I loved him. But if I didn't see it before, I definitely saw it after the fact. When he returned, he was 70 pounds lighter, tightly groomed. He was respectful of every adult he encountered. And he was very well-spoken. But alas, he only went away to boarding school one year. When he got back, he came back to the same neighborhood, same household, same friend group, same environment, same public school. And within just a few months, the person that I had lost to military school came back in full force. And it was sad to watch, actually, as I watched Ty become who he used to be. You know, Proverbs says, don't allow yourself to go back to the old life. Don't go back like a dog returns to its vomit. Don't go back. And see, last week, uh, Frank got to teach us, and rather masterfully, about not going back to um, the things that we had been taught in our religious structures that we practice to appease God. Don't go back to legalism. And today, Paul's going to take it further in Colossians 3. He says, don't go back to the way that you just naturally live and bear fruit by your flesh that you try to appease God by doing all the things that keep it. For instance, he says, you know, if you're, if you're trying to carry and keep the very heavy law we talked about last week, if you're guilty of one law, you're guilty of the entire thing. It was heavy. It was overbearing. It could not be done. But he said, but don't also return to a life of flesh where you simply feel free to please yourself and be self-seeking like my friend Ty was. I think about our students that we just prayed for, and I remember how many times and how many times I joked in seminary that, uh, that I, I would walk into my seminary classes and my friends would look at me and go, hey, Justin, what's wrong with you? And I'd say, man, I'm just, I don't know, I'm not feeling it. I'm not feeling so great. And they're like, they're like, what's wrong with you? I was like, I don't know, man. I just, I need to go to camp. I need to sign up and go where God is because that's where God lives. Every time I go to camp, I encounter God and I come back to my my regime and it's like God goes away. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Ever had that camp experience where you go away, you encounter God, you have this amazing experience with him and then you come back and within two weeks, it's life as it was before you left. You know what I'm talking about? Today, I want to pray intensely for our students that they not do what maybe some of us have encountered, that they go away and they have their lives forever changed. 
that they have their lives forever changed because they encountered Jesus. And whether they know Jesus already or they just are led to the next level in their walk with Jesus, that they come back and forever changed and they don't see what they experienced at Christ wear off within just two weeks. In Colossians 3, verse 1, it says, So if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. How can we know the mind and heart of someone that we never spend time with? In the NIV, it says, set your hearts and minds on the things that are above, on the things that God cares about. Brother Lawrence says like this in the practice of the presence of God. He says, I cannot imagine how religious persons can live satisfied without the practice of the presence of God. For my part, I keep myself retired with him in depth at the center of my soul as much as I can. And while I am so with him, I fear nothing. But the least turning from him is insupportable. I want to use another biblical passage to really unpack this first point. Can I do that? In Luke 10, we see this story of where Jesus travels into a town and he's invited by Martha to come to her house. Maybe you're familiar with it. It says, while they were traveling, in verse 38, he entered a village of a woman named Martha, who welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary, who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks, and she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. And the Lord answered her and said, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice, and it will not be taken away from her. In the NIV, it says that Mary has made the better choice. And that brings me to our first point. We have to be with Jesus. There's no way to know the mind and heart of Jesus unless we're with him, unless we're practicing being with Jesus. We won't know what God desires. We won't know what Jesus desires unless we spend intentional time with him. See, Mary sat at his feet while Martha didn't do anything innately wrong. Martha was doing what she'd been taught and she was trying to be a gracious host. But how many of us busy ourselves and we miss the entire point? There's something that we have to begin to practice and that is to to sit at Jesus' feet. Today, I hope to give you just a few things that I'm gonna to plan to unpack as we get into the fall. I'm gonna do a series on, on spiritual disciplines where I'll talk through each of these. But when it comes to practicing at Jesus' feet, again, Dallas Willard said, it's, it's not that God's opposed to effort, it's a, he's opposed to earning. We don't do the things that I'm about to list for you as to appease God or to earn his love. We already have it. We do these things to sit at his feet and really give him due process, like the due position in our lives of first priority. Like we come to him and we walk with him and we practice a life that says that he's the better thing and most important. So here's a, here's a working list. First of all, um, I think that we need to regain Sabbath. Sabbath is a day that was instituted 
And, I, and here's the thing. I firmly believe that Jesus is our Sabbath. The Hebrews writers taught us that, and our rest is found in Jesus alone. But Sabbath was never given to us for God. It was for us. And it is a place that if we will practice weekly, a time where we can come and do the things that I'm about to tell you once and intentionally, not just a day off, not just a day to go be not at work and do all the things that you haven't done at home, not just complete the honeydew list, but a time where it's intentionally set apart for you and the Lord to sit at his feet like Mary picture. We see Mary here in Luke 10 and we allow him to speak a day that we observe but then a day that we remember and we anticipate that the Lord will speak and out of the next few days, we, we practice as he has told us. So Sabbath, number two, scripture. I believe that it is important for us to sit in our time with the Lord and daily have time in scripture, but at the Sabbath, really, really immerse ourselves in scripture. And this is a day where you've got to put your phone away and take the technology and set it aside. I, how many of you still love the power of loose leaf? Okay, maybe a journal. In the scriptures, just get away and let God speak. I believe that in order to hear God speak, whether through scripture or internally within our spirit, where he resides, we need silence. We've got to silence the voices that are vying for our attention all the time and take, take away the ability for him to speak it, that, that drowned out his voice in our lives. And solitude is when he speaks and we give him license to do so. So silence and solitude. Number four, We've got to slow down in order to do it. How many of you, your life is at a pace of 90 to nothing, constantly moving from one thing to the next? Jesus modeled for us slowing down, slowing down to take it in, to smell the roses, if you will. And Sabbath, scripture, silence and solitude all require slowing down to do so. And it's an important practice for us as believers to not live frantically, not live worried. He said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added to you. Next one, simple living. So much of our lives is compacted by stuff. And Jesus himself said in Matthew 6, you either serve God or mammon. Some of us need to get back to a simplicity where it's just truly what the Lord wants and nothing else matters. Simply letting the Lord be famous in our lives and from our life go to expand to others and nothing else compares. He said, if you're going to be mine, your love for your closest family member must seem like hatred because of the devotion and its distinction for me as opposed to anything or anyone else. And lastly, it takes sacrifice. It takes sacrifice to live in this way, but he also said, you cannot be my disciple unless you otherwise daily take up your cross, sacrifice your flesh and come after me. It's amazing to me how much of the church of Jesus Christ isn't practicing the presence of Jesus Christ isn't being with Jesus. And so I want to challenge us today. This is what Paul's telling us to do. If we're going to set our minds on the things that Jesus said were most important, then we have to spend time with the Lord. John 15 tells us that we cannot bear fruit. No plant can bear fruit if it is disconnected from the vine. So our, our old lives are gone. Our new life is here. And in order to walk in this new life, these things are important. Verse five of chapter three, 
Moving to the next point. If we'll do these things, we can become or put to death what belongs to the earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you were once walked in these things because you were living in them. But now put away all of the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in the knowledge according to the image of your creator in Christ. There is not Greek, Jew, circumcision, uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So verse 12, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against someone else. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you should forgive. Above all, put on love and the perfect bond of unity. So Thomas Chalmers said it like this, the best way to overcome the world is not with morality or with self-discipline. What I just gave you is spiritual disciplines. Self-discipline. Christians overcome the world by seeing the beauty and excellence of Christ. They overcome the world by seeing something more attractive than the world. Christ himself. Let me ask you, like, how many of you that list sounded familiar that we just read? That sounds familiar, right? Okay. It's because in Galatians 5, it says, I say then, Paul, same author, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh, for the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what against the flesh. They're opposed to each other, and they do not they force you to do what you don't want to. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger. All the things we just read. And he says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, patience, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And in these, the law is not against. Let me ask you this. How, if you've ever read that list as an exhaustive list of actions, something you should do, then I want to caution you and say that we have read this list wrong. We've read it through moralistic eyes or legalistic eyes. The only command in the passage that says uh, in Galatians 5 that says you'll bear spiritual fruit is if you submit to the Spirit. If you submit to the Spirit and you deny your flesh, you stop submitting to your ways, your self-seeking ways, you stop submitting to what John Calvin called your idol factory, your heart. What he was saying was this, that our hearts are idol factories, that the smoke of our sin is there because there's a fire of idolatry burning within our lives. In other words, if I lie, it is because I've set something else in my heart above God worth lying for. If I steal, it is because I have set before him something else in my life that is cherished. Listen, if you or I are still seeking anything in the world above our seeking out of Christ, then that is the thing we're after. And we only are after it because ultimately we worship ourselves. 
All religion will teach you outside of true fellowship of Jesus, true apprenticeship of Jesus will teach you to appease God, to do certain things so that he does not smite you. That is not what Paul is talking about. Paul's talking about following the Lord in such a way that you let go of yourself completely, that you're not self-seeking, that you can actually forgive, that you can actually love those who have smited you. How many of you are like me, and I recognize just how much this message is for me, when I read this passage here, go to another and forgive them if you have a grievance against them, just as the Lord has forgiven you. How many of you are really good at keeping grievances and building a case against others? How many of you are great, excellent at keeping score? Let's imagine I have a bag, and it's you know, filled with all the things that people have done against me. But I want you to imagine like with everything that I place in that bag, it's kind of weighty as stone. So when they lie to me, when they betray me, when they steal from me, I place in the bag and I take that bag and I throw it over my shoulder. And I carry it and I file it and I hold on to it so that one day in hopes I can break out my stones and cast them in the direction of the one who first hurt me. But let me ask you this. That's a lot of weight to carry. That's a lot weighing you down in hopes, in hopes to get someone back. Especially when Jesus said, if one hit you on the right side, what'd he say? Turn to him what? The other cheek as well. When we carry malice and bitterness and resentment, it doesn't weigh down the person that you hold it against. It weighs down you, weighs down me. It does more damage in our lives than it does in the lives of those that we're building a case against. So he says, forgive them, let it go. In fact, if you're gonna become like me and you're gonna bear the fruit that I have, submit to the spirit and you cannot do it alone. You have community that I've placed you in and there's a great place to practice it because here's the thing. I'm gonna say something that most of us don't wanna admit. Some of us have grievances against people within our own church. And we haven't loved them enough to be honest with them. We haven't loved them enough to go to them and say, I've held this against you. And if you're not gonna do it with the people in your church who say they're submitted to Jesus, then how would we ever do it with the boss who got one over on you? How would you ever do that in your secular society that worships itself and is doing whatever it can to get ahead, even if that means upon your back? And I know that's hard, and I know it's easy to build a case against, but how are we ever going to move forward? He says, we've got to be willing to walk accountably with one another, casting aside our flesh, asking for others to speak into our lives, giving them license to do so, so that we can actually become like Jesus. And we can perform the last point. Here it is. Verse 17. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We have to do what Jesus does. We have to do like Jesus. Listen, if you will be with Jesus and submit to his spirit, I believe that we will naturally become like Jesus and the things that Jesus would do will naturally come out of who we are by the power of his spirit. But there are things that stand in the way of that taking place. Let me, let me list a few. 
Tim Keller and David Pallison break down these in a way that I think are pretty helpful for us. He said that our hearts are idol factories. Let me, let me go a step further and say these are the idols they're talking about. They call them root idols, approval. This is the longing to be liked by others. If this is in you, maybe, maybe you can relate. Your greatest fear is that someone will reject you. When you exaggerate who you are just so you can impress others, waiting for someone to stop talking so that you can tell your story, you crave the praise of people. Does this sound familiar to anyone or, or just me? You want to um, <laughs> do just about anything to please others and make them happy. People who seek approval and that's their desire, that's their idol, that's the thing they're after. Really, it's so that they'll, the world will look at you, but the thing that you desire is approval have and struggle to have a backbone. Number two, power. The longing for influence. Life only makes sense if you have authority and power. Let me ask you a question. Is everything in life for you a competition? If that is the case, this may be your struggle. Three, control. Longing to have everything go your way. Anyone struggle with this? Life only makes sense if uh, I have mastery in my life over an area. Uncertainty is terrifying, and so I seek to control every situation. And I must, I must say this, others feel condemned because the person who sees them through the eyes of their own struggle. Let me ask you this, um, controllers, okay? How many of you have a tendency to worry a lot? Yeah, okay, listen, if you worry a lot, hands raised, you struggle with control. Okay? If you worry a lot, this is your struggle. And let me ask you also, just nice and easy, how many of you who struggle with control have a tendency to see the faults in others really quickly? Because they're your faults. He told us that we should not cast or speak of the plank in our brother's eye, or the speck in our brother's eye when we have a plank within our own. See, my faults are blatantly obvious to me and I'll call them out in others because, quite honestly, I know them and I wrestle with them myself. Too often, I want to point out the faults in others that I actually am, am, am struggling with myself so that no one will look at mine. See, I can control the environment if I just point and condemn my brother and his faults because it takes one to know one. And then maybe, maybe no one will look at me. And the last is this longing for pleasure. The root idol is comfort. Maybe you said this, um, I, don't, uh, I don't need to be rich, I just want to be comfortable. Well, I want to ask you, um, in Jesus' teachings throughout the Gospels, where did Jesus ever ask his people to be comfortable? And I, and I, I get it, because like, I, I desire every one of these things I struggle and they're the root issue for many of us, but I don't think that we can move forward or grow or become like Jesus and do the things that Jesus desires if we don't look at our own tendencies here. They may be motivating you. These things may be motivating you more than a love for Jesus or time with him. In fact, Jesus said that pure and undefiled, or James said, pure and undefiled religion is before God and the Father looks like this, that you care for the orphans, the widows, those in distress, and keep oneself unstained from the world. And that's what Paul's saying here. But like, we all know it's good to go to the soup kitchen, correct? 
We all know it's good to go serve those who are less fortunate, maybe love those who are unlovely. But what's your motivation behind going to serve those who are unlovely? What's your motivation behind going and serving those who are less fortunate? Is it because Jesus forgave me and I desire to invest in those who need to know that forgiveness? I love him so much for loving me when I was his foe that I go and spread the love of Jesus. Or is it in hopes that someone will see me and give approval for what I did? It's in hopes that ultimately someone will have a better image of who I am because I went and served people who don't necessarily look like me. Hello? You see, these root idols have a tendency to struggle and mess with our image. Anybody here image conscience? Maybe it's just me. Doing, Ty came back from military school and I gotta say, he looked innately different. For those of us who have gathered in this place to worship Jesus, my, my question is, does your life look different? We gather here for worship, we attend services, we attend small groups, we attend special events, we attend service projects, we attend. But my question this morning that I've been begging myself to answer and I'm asking it for you as friends because I think the Lord is asking me is, are we practicing? Are we practicing the ways of Jesus as if we've been completely changed from who we once were? When people who knew you prior to Jesus look at your life, would they recognize someone different today? Or would they, would they be able to look at your life and see the root idols that I just pointed out? Would they actually see someone who struggles rather with the flesh and those, those idol factories of the heart more so, than, more so than someone who when they're cut off in traffic has patience for that? In fact, how do you respond when the world hurts you? Do you respond like Jesus or do you respond like the world? Do we in fact look different? Because I think that we have enough people in America attending churches. What we don't have is a lot of people practicing the ways of Jesus who claim discipleship to Jesus. How many of us want to look like Jesus because our heart is for Jesus? And like Mary, we want to be with him, sit at his feet and not just continue to be distracted by the things we must do that are all, listen, all encompassing and we define as good. <laughs> but we wanna sit at Jesus' feet so we can become like Jesus and do what Jesus cared about, distancing ourselves from a life that the, the Proverbs author, Solomon say, was like vomit. It was old and gross, a life fulfilling the flesh. How many of us recognize that Jesus died in your place, in my place, so that we wouldn't have to have that? We wouldn't have to be slaves to sin. We wouldn't have to have that kind of life. He took what we didn't deserve so that we, in fact, could be free. We could be free of that and we could look differently. We could look like him in a world that needs a savior. When we, the church, allow him to live and lord over our lives like he's the boss of them. When we come to a place like this in our services and we look at the table and we recognize it was his body that was broken to take upon what I deserved. 
It was his body that was broken to free me and his blood that was shed to atone for the sin that was in my heart. The rebellious tendency that was within me. He did that willingly because he loved me like no one else on the planet had. And when I come to a place like this in the service, I have this opportunity to come to his altar and go, Lord, thank you, not just at the table, but thank you because my heart is called to repent. It means to look differently. It means that I'm firmly aware that I'm still a person seeking the approval of others and I'll do whatever I can to get that approval. Even if that means I control the arenas of my life to be able to put forth an image that's actually not real, but I want the rest of the world to look at it because that seems acceptable in a, in a, in a Christ-like world. I want them to see the image that they would deem as beautiful and not see what's actually here inside my ugly heart, my idol factory. I want to be with you, Jesus, so that I can become like you and do the things that you do naturally. I don't want to turn to myself any longer. I desire to repent of who I once was. I want to make such a stark impression on people that when I return, I look more like the new tie than I do the old tie. This morning, do you look different because you have a heart for Jesus? Jesus.